All right. Well, one, I want to thank everyone for being here on this Mother's Day that is also uh, the Lord's Day. Uh, and so we are going to go to the Lord's Word this morning. Uh, but as a, as a gift for you, uh, someone in the church has uh, made some bags uh, for you guys as you leave. You'll see them on a table out there. So on your way out, please grab those uh, as a gift. Uh, and so... Um, we're just uh, thankful for the mothers here and the impact they have on our children uh, and, and our homes and our marriages. So thank you guys. Uh, and really, we are thanking the Lord uh, because we know he has just been a, done amazing work in you guys. And we're so thankful for you and thankful for the Lord's uh, work in you. And because of that, we're going to read the Lord's word. Uh, we're now back. If you, wanna, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Uh, we're back now to the issue of, of prayer. Um, we'll continue walking through this. We Just to remind ourselves, what is prayer? We went through that. Prayer is asking God to do something. Uh, we looked at the importance of prayer. Why is prayer important? How important is it? It's the Bible tells us one of the greatest blessings that God can give to a creature is that they can talk to their creator, right? And that he will listen to them and not just listen, but act. I mean, think about that. I mean, so, okay, I'm not going to go all the way back to that second sermon and think about it again. We, we talked about how wonderful that is to be able to talk to our creator, genuinely talk to him and him act out of love for us. But we saw that prayer has hindrances. There are, I mean, let's face it, there are things that as great as prayer is, there are things that get in the way of us praying. I mean, you have this great treasure, and yet why don't we take advantage of it? And Scripture actually tells us things that will be hindrances to prayer. Remember, we looked at prayer ADD. It just happened to be ADD, uh, that, that abundance will get in the way of prayer. Doubt will get in the way of prayer. Disobedience will get in the way of prayer. I'm not saying that those hinder our prayers in the sense of uh, they, they make God not listen to us. The Bible tells us they hinder our prayers in that when those things are going on, we typically do not pray. Those are things that if they're taking place in our lives, they will stop prayer before it even comes out of our mouths. So got this great gift, but there are things that can hinder us taking advantage of that great gift. So, so now we know, we know what prayer is. We know how important it is. We know what might get in the way. So now for the last few weeks, we've been looking at, all right, well, then how do you do it? How do you pray? If, if, if we're going to do like the disciples did and say, Lord, teach us to pray. If we're going to go and, and go to scripture and say, how does the Bible Teach us about how to pray. Uh, what is interesting is that in teaching the disciples in how to pray, where did Jesus begin? He began with how not to pray, right? So in teaching his disciples about prayer, the first thing he taught them was this is how not to pray. And so if that's where Jesus began in teaching people about prayer, we went, that's probably a good place for us to begin uh, in teaching people about prayer. And so we started the, the last couple weeks looking at Matthew chapter 6, that critical chapter on prayer that has the, the Lord's prayer in it. And, and there Jesus talked about two traps to avoid in prayer. We want to know how to pray. So these are two common temptations. You could really, I mean, you could make an argument that if Jesus lists these two things first, that they might be the most common temptations uh, in prayer. One, don't pray to be seen by others. Remember that was what he said the, the first time, that there is a temptation in prayer 
when you pray to instead of thinking about the one that you're talking to, to think about the people that are around you. There's temptation to, to think about them. And so some people, you know, some, some of us love to pray. And, and, and we're the first ones to pray. And we love to pray, though, because we, we want other people to see us as godly. And so we pray because if I don't pray, this person here in my prayer group isn't going to see me as godly as I want to be seen. It's not that I'm going to pray because I really want to talk to God about this. It's that I want to pray or I'm going to pray because I'm worried about what these people around me will think. Now, some of us, that's why we pray. That's why we'll always pray. That's why when there's a prayer meeting, we're the first one to speak up, the first one to pray out loud. That's a temptation. You've also got that same temptation, though, in a contra position, right? Which is what? Some of us don't pray for that exact same reason. Uh, We don't pray because when it comes time to pray, instead of thinking, I get to talk to God, which you could, would rightly make you nervous, right? Instead, we are somehow more nervous that in talking to God, someone else is going to hear it. Uh, and so we don't pray, not because our minds are on God, but because our minds uh, are on others. So we saw that first temptation. Then we saw the, the temptation of long prayers. Uh, that there, the second temptation Jesus mentioned was the temptation uh, to think that God only hears our prayers when they reach a certain length or when they have a certain level of theological depth to them. Uh, and so we think that by our many words that, that our long prayers are somehow better prayers. And we saw that that, that type of thinking, that God's only going to hear me if my prayer gets to a certain level in terms of length or depth, really shows a lack of faith. That, that long prayers can show a, a lack of faith as if we have to stir God to action. And, and like Jesus tells us, we're actually treating God like the pagans have to treat their gods. You know, got to fire him up like some old lawnmower before he does something for us. That long prayers we saw can be a, can be a sign of actually short faith. Now, if we think it's too short, it won't work. That's a sign that we've got that, that mindset. And so those, that was the end of Jesus' warnings. Right? That was the end of, of those, those warnings that he gave in Matthew 6. But that's not the end of the Bible's warnings about how not to pray. There's actually more that the Bible lays out as uh, continuing. Uh, you, you, you think here we're going to be in James. So you wonder if Jesus warned about other things that, that these disciples then continued to speak about in their letters. And so in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, we're going to see another way of how not to pray. By being here, not even just by listening to it, but by obeying it. And so let's, let's even prayerfully uh, be asking God to teach us and cause us to do his word even as we read it. Beginning in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now, God, and I pray that as we talk to you, there is no doubt in our hearts. That we are not doubting that the God of the universe is hearing us right now, that we are not doubting uh, that the God who made this world is watching our worship, that we are not doubting that our praise is going up to him like sweet smelling incense. God, I pray that we would believe all those things and that as we pray to you, We are praying in faith today. 
And so, God, make us a people of faith and not of doubting. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And that's what we're going to see today. The second or this third sort of sort of how not to pray is is the danger of doubt. Really, we're going to see that that doubt when it comes to prayer, that doubt is a destructive root, uh, that doubt is a destructive root in prayer and really in life. Now, now we've already looked at doubt. If you remember prayer ADD, we've already seen doubt mentioned that doubt can be a hindrance to pray. Uh, we doubt that God cares about us. We doubt that, that he's going to do anything, so we don't pray. But the Bible also says that doubt's a problem in a new way. That sometimes, sometimes doubt can keep us from praying. Sometimes it, doubt doesn't keep us from praying, though. And, but that doubt remains in our minds even as we pray. So the doubt that we have isn't strong enough to stop us from praying altogether, But that doesn't mean that the doubt isn't a problem. That just because you're praying, right? If we're doubting, we won't pray. You go, I'm praying. I must not be doubting. The Bible says that's not true. That you can ask, but you can ask with doubt still in your head. And if that's going on, the Bible is going to tell us that's a real problem. And so James, when he comes here, say, when you pray, make sure that you don't doubt. So how not to pray? Do not pray with any, right? With any doubt. But what's interesting is James begins not with the, not with the problem. James actually begins with great confidence, right? I mean, if you look at verse five, this is a great verse. This is a great promise about prayer here. Great. And it it, it is a promise of great confidence in a generous God. So in talking about prayer, he begins with, Hey guys, you should in prayer actually have tons of confidence in a God who is very generous, Now, this is going to be important because this is going to show us why doubt is so ridiculous. Because our God is a generous God. And and, and that's the truth. So when you pray, that's the truth we need to hold on to. That's the reality that we need to hold firm to, that we should be building on in terms of our prayer. That's the the foundation when you pray. This is all the doubts that come into your head. They're all going to be lies. Every reason you have to doubt God or to doubt your in prayer, all of them are lies. They are untrue. What is true is that when you pray, you pray to a very you, you pray to a generous God who hears and answers his people. So so in terms of what not to do, here's the reason why prayer why doubting in prayer makes no sense and it's verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given here. Do you see all the positive stacked in that prayer? So so James has just talked about temptations that we face, that we may face, that we can rejoice in, in facing temptations of various kinds because we know that those temptations are actually growing us. That's how he begins James chapter one. But that's a heady battle, right? To understand that even your temptations are going to grow you. And so James says, you want to go into that battle wisely. You want to be wise in that battle. So how do we get wisdom to see those things? How do we make sure that we're wise to understand the battle that we're facing? He says, easy. You want to be wise? Great. Ask God. Ask God for wisdom. So you're looking at your battle. You're looking at your temptations. You're going, man, a lot of times I don't handle my temptations very well. 
I, I don't battle very well. How can I learn to battle rightly? How can I be wise? Well, James says, ask God. If you lack wisdom, ask God. And look at James really lay out how much of a giver God is. I mean, James is effusive in talking about God's giving. One, he gives what? Generously. So he gives generously. So it's not that God just gives. James says God gives. So the one you're praying to is a giver who gives generously. So not only does he give, which would be amazing enough for God to ever answer any of our prayers, even to give us a little drip of what we're asking for is more than we deserve. But God doesn't just give us a drip of, he's not like, I mean, if if God said, hey, I promise you one out of every thousand prayers I'm going to answer. We should rightly go, that's amazing. Uh, I can't believe that the God of the universe is going to answer one out of every thousand prayers. If you don't think that's very believable, go and watch how many people buy lottery tickets uh, who know that one out of every, you know, ten hundred million uh, is going to is going to come back. If we had a God who just promised one in a thousand, I'll answer one of your thousand prayers. But that's not what God does. God gives and he gives generously. To whom? To all. So here again, James is stacking the generosity of God. God gives generously, but not just generously to, you know, to pastors or to uh, Bible writers. He gives generously to whom? To all. And he does it what? Without reproach. That word for reproach is like a word that means to to chide or to gripe. Have you known people that will give? But they give it like, I guess, Uh, you know, that's not what God's doing. God's not up there like, oh, I'm obligated to give to my people. Uh, And here, take it. And it's abundant. And, you know, I, I really wish you hadn't asked. I wish you could learn to do all this on your own. That's not what God's doing. God is giving generously to all and doing it without griping about having to answer our prayers. So when you go to God in prayer, he's going to give you generously and he's not going to be giving to you griping the whole time. He's not hating that he's having to give you from his abundance. God is a cheerful giver, which is another reason that Paul says in 2 Corinthians that you and I must be cheerful givers. That a a, a grumbling or grieved giver is not a godly giver. Because when God gives to his people, it is always joyous. It is always abundantly. And it's it's never reproachful or I wish I didn't have to do this. So God, he, he gives generously. He gives generously to all of us. He does it without reproach. So you don't even have to feel like you're making him mad for asking. So that James can confidently say at the end, you ask... And it will be given to you. What's even more striking about that, I think, isn't that James could phrase it that way. But when you realize who it is that is telling James to write these words. Who is it that is inspired? This isn't James just speaking from experience here. This isn't James just pontificating about what he's learned about God. This is God causing his spirit to move James to tell us about how generous he is. God is the one telling us, ask, I am generous. I'm generous to all of you without reproach. Ask and I will give it. 
So that's the confidence that our prayer lives are supposed to be built on. But we're going to find out when it comes to doubt, the problem isn't from God's side, is it? The problem is from our side. And the dangerous root of doubt, because look at what he says in verse 5 and 6. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given him. But Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. So, so we, can, we can ask God and God will be generous. He'll be kind. He'll give it. But we must ask in faith. Now what's interesting is James doesn't focus on what faith is, does he? From, from here on out. He focuses on what faith isn't. And why a lack of faith is a problem. That's why this verse is in the how not to pray section and not in the how to pray section. Although it's going to show up in the how to pray section later. Because, because he mentions faith, right? He starts out saying, let him ask in faith. But then he goes off for the rest of the discussion talking about doubt and the problem of doubt, the repercussions of doubt. So in terms of prayer, and for James here, faith might be the first word, but doubt is all the others. The problem of doubt and why doubt is so dangerous and what we can expect when we doubt as opposed to what God promises if we ask in faith. So when we look at how to pray in faith, it tells us how not to pray. Uh, and we see that, that faith, if we're praying in faith, it leaves no room for doubt. No room. If you're praying how not to pray, you make sure that you leave no room for doubt in your prayers not any room whatsoever it says let him pray in faith let him ask in faith with no doubting in fact that word no there is an emphatic word for no it would be the greek version of capital no uh it means like do not ever like not even a bit of doubting it's very similar to when uh paul asks in romans 6 shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound and he says God, no, never, never let it be that you would do that. This is the same idea here, that we're to have no doubting whatsoever. What does it mean to doubt? Now, I think the Greek in this is very interesting, very helpful, because this word for doubt, is, which is not the, what you could call the common word or typical word for doubt, it's a combination of two words. The word for to judge something or to look at something, to analyze something, and the word through. So it is to judge through, to look through. It is to judge something, to think through it, to think about it. It is the picture that would often have is of thinking through something. Uh, it could even be used in terms of a conflict when someone would judge between the two sides. Uh, so that's the idea here. You, so you see it, for example, this is the word Paul uses uh, in 1 Corinthians when he talks about how the church must 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 discern the body. It's that, that's that same word, that they must discern the body while taking the Lord's Supper. Now, it obviously doesn't mean, I mean, you can imagine if the ESV said, you know, that the church must doubt the body. 
Uh, so, I mean, it's obvious that that's not a word that just always means to doubt something or to, or to whatever, but rather what? What is it saying? How can it use the same word that is translated doubt here and discern there? Because the picture behind that word is, that it is not to doubt the body of Christ, but rather to not so rashly eat. Remember what's going on in Corinth? People so rashly eating that they don't think through the body. So think about the body. They don't think through. You don't think about the body that you're eating and you're not thinking about the body that you're eating with, which was both of the problems in in Corinth. But here there's not two parties, right? That's the problem. Here there's there's not anything to think through. The battle is not between you and someone else or, or discerning two sides of a wrong. The battle is all going inside of you. It's between you and you. That's what's going on when we doubt. You are doubting the situation. You've got who God is and you're going, I'm not sure about that. Let me think about that before I pray. Let me think through this. So God says, this is who I am. And you go, instead of going, that's who you are, you go, hmm, let me think about that. Let me think if I really believe that's who you are. And that's why in Acts chapter 10, verse 20, Luke uses it this way. He says, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. That word for hesitation is the same word translated doubt here. The same word translated to discern the body in 1 Corinthians 11. Same same word here. To doubt is to hesitate. It's to have a battle in your mind that causes you to pause rather than act in faith. And so this word and, and faith are paired together often in Scripture. Faith and doubt are, are often battling each other. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. And we see that when we've got real faith, there's no room for doubt. So Romans 4, 20, talking about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham did not, that word for waver is the word for doubt. Abraham did not waver. He did not doubt God. He didn't waver in his trust of God and of his promises. In fact, his faith, he was so strong in his faith that it caused him to give more glory to God. So when we've got faith, there is no wavering. There is no hesitation. There is no doubting. Romans 14, 23 says, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from what? From faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So here you've got a person who is either eating meat or or drinking uh, wine, but they're not really sure that they should be. They're still thinking through it. And so even though they're still thinking through it, so there's that doubting, should I really be doing this? And the question, you know, asking, is this right? And, and, And Paul is saying here, look, that person, their actions aren't springing from faith, the surety of faith. They're still hesitating. And even though they're not sure if it's right or not, they're doing it anyway. That's why he can say such actions uh, don't proceed. What doesn't proceed from faith is sin because this person isn't sure that they should be doing it, but they do it anyway. There's still that hesitation, still that doubt. And prayer and doubt uh, or faith and doubt are paired uh, in prayer as well by Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. 
So Matthew chapter 21, verses 22, or 21 and 22 says, And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, there's those two words, you will not only uh, do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So remember, Jesus has, has cursed the fig tree. The disciples are amazed. They come back the next day. The fig tree's dead. And Jesus is telling them, look, you're going to be able to do greater things than this. You're going to be able to do greater things than curse a fig tree that's going to end up dying. You'll be able to cast this mountain. Look, if you, if you ask this, what? If you ask... If you have faith and do not doubt, then anything you ask in prayer, you will receive. But Jesus is clear, faith without doubt. Doubt is a killer of the work of God. So what does it mean to doubt in prayer? I mean, just look at those examples of faith and doubt that we've seen in, in Romans 4, in Romans 14, in Matthew 21. What does it mean to have faith Instead of doubt, well, doubt would be doubting the promises of God, either doubting the promise or character of God. We saw that in Romans 4. Abraham knew that God had promised this, and he knew God would, could and would keep his word. And so his faith was centered on who God was, on what God could do. We doubt sometimes. Doubt is praying before you believe. So uh, if we're trying to leave no room for doubt, what does doubt look like? Doubt doubts who God is. God uh, doubt doubts that God will keep his word. Doubt uh, is seen when you pray before you believe. I mean, that was the problem with those who ate. It's not that they ate, but that they ate before they believed. They ate while still doubting. Now, that might seem like a circuitous tie to prayer, right? Like we have to believe, we have to believe it before we pray it. Don't we have to get it and then we'll believe it? We're actually going to talk about this in a few weeks. Colossians chapter 4 is a great place to go there. Uh, But the Bible actually tells us that when we pray, we're actually supposed to believe that we have it even before we get it. Because we're so confident in God. Because we know God gives generously to all who ask without reproach. And if you ask, you will receive it. So we know that if we're asking for things that are for God's glory and our good, he's going to give them. And we should believe that even before we pray it. That if you pray, if you've got to get it in order to believe it, you're not praying in faith. This is what Jesus actually says in Mark chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So when you ask it, believe that you have gotten it and you will get it. And there's a lot of people that turn this verse on its head and ask for all sorts of things, right? This is not like make a wish list and be like, I can't wait for that Lambo to be in my driveway. Or like the begs prayer, I can't wait to get eight megabits of download speed on my internet. Uh, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to walk up the street and I'm going to get it. Uh, 
No, you gotta you gotta go to Davies to get that. Uh, doubt doubt also is doubting that God will answer. Right? That that's if you doubt that God's gonna answer your prayer, that's what the the disciples couldn't believe what was done. It was a lack of faith and a prevalence of doubt. And Jesus said, Look, you need to get rid of the doubt that you guys have. You need to be so rid of doubt. There needs to be so no room for doubt whatsoever that you can know that God can even do greater things than curse this fig tree and will do greater things that you'll be able to cast mountains into the sea that in fact anything you pray if you ask it in faith what does Jesus say you will receive it so we've got to leave if you want to pray the right way want to make sure that the, the dangerous root of prayer is not entering our prayer lives there's no room for doubt in your prayers at all leave no room for doubt now why why is doubt such a problem well james actually tells us what's the problem with doubt doubt destabilizes us doubt destabilizes us it says for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind and here we see the, the destabilizing nature of doubt. He says the person who has doubt ends up being like a wave. So whichever way the wind blows is the way they go. I don't know if you know this, but the ocean doesn't decide which way the waves are going to go. Right? It's not like, it's not out there going, I think today, this is why when you go to the beach, right, the waves aren't sometimes going, you know, this way, right, or back out. Uh, you know, there is a pretty, the wind is just... Uh, pulling them, also the moon, but that's a whole other subject. Uh, so the, the wind is driving uh, these waves. We were actually in Africa, Lake Malawi, which is not an ocean. In case you're picturing the major oceans of the world, Lake Malawi is not one of them. But it's got big waves because it's got mountains on both sides and the wind's got nowhere to go but right down the top of that lake. And the waves are, I mean, they're like cresting, coming in to the point that the, the, the people from that area were like, don't go into the water, it's dangerous. And they came out to watch a bunch of white guys swimming in, in these waves because they were like, man, that's, that's just, you don't do that. Uh, these waves were so, so huge and the wind was driving them. The Bible says, look, if you have doubt, your life is going to be like that wave. And a thing's going to come and it's going to blow you this way. And maybe it'll blow you to being happy. You're like, everything's great. But then another wind comes, just the wind, and it blows you another way. And, and yesterday you were happy. Today you're sad and like deathly sad. Uh, yesterday life was great. Today it's horrible. Yesterday you loved the Lord. Today you're sort of you're reveling in your sin. All these things are just driven by the waves. That's not how a Christian is supposed to be. In fact, one of the things that defines us as Christians is that we're no longer like that. Being tossed back and forth is how the Bible defines the life of the wicked. It is the wicked that have no stability. I mean, this is why Jesus talks about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if, you, if you're not listening to his words, you're building your house on the sand. That, that, that everyone who doesn't listen to Christ, is building their lives on the sand. And the winds come and the waves come and knock down their houses. But this is what the Bible's talked to us about the wicked from the beginning. So uh, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20 and 21. It says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. 
and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So so he said, look, the wicked in this world, they're stirred. And not only are they stirred, but they like stirring things up. It is the wicked that are stirred in their life and they like stirring up things. This is why when the wicked get together for Thanksgiving, uh, everything gets brought up. Why? Because Isaiah 57 is still true. It's not because these people have, you know, messed up family lives or family structures. It's because this is what people without Christ do. They are stirred up. And if you want to not feel bad about your life being an absolute mess, what do you do? You try and point out the messes in everybody else's life. Uh, And so it's just like, happy Thanksgiving. Here's the mire and the mud. Uh, And then everyone walks away, what? Pretty stirred up. Uh, and that's, he says, that's what the wicked are like. Their life is constant turmoil. They have, God says, no peace in their life. Jude describes it this way in Jude 13. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame. Uh, waves carry the foam with them and the The ungodly life is like a life of a wild wave, foam everywhere, detrius everywhere, just all sorts of stuff all about in life. The Christian is not supposed to be like that. Jesus said in in Matthew uh, 7 that the Christian life is the one whose life is built on the sand. We're known by our stability. And so, in in fact, the Christian maturity is actually described as not being like a wave, right? So you look at Ephesians 4, verse 14, what does it say? So we grow up into this maturity, why? That we may no longer be children. And what are children? Children are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It is is childlike, Paul is saying. To be always moving from one thought to another where our ideas are constantly shifting. He says, if you're not, if you're, the Christian life is supposed to be solidly set in the word of God so that people can't come to you and either use cunning or schemes to make your life all tossed up again, all wild. And you're driven from this side to this side and whatever book you read latest is what you believe. And then, and you're not, because you're not founded in the scriptures, you're founded in everything else. So every wind of doctrine Right? Some books by people are great books that want to encourage you in the word. But I don't know if you know this, but not every book is. Not every person, not every podcast you listen to, not every person on the radio, not every article you read on the internet when you're like, what should I believe about? Not every one of those has been checked by your pastors, right? And they're like sent through your Google filters. So the Christian in their maturity is not to be like a wave. And when we doubt, we are like waves. When we doubt in our prayers and we're constantly vacillating between what? What are we vacillating between? Pretty big areas here. Trusting God and not trusting God. That's the wave-like category in prayer. I trust God today, tomorrow. I don't trust God Is that really where our Christian faith is? Where we trust God and we're so excited and can't wait for him. And then the next day, because we've allowed doubt to take root in our hearts, we're like a wave who's tossed the exact opposite way the next day. 
there is an immaturity there in our Christian life. If you have doubt, there is an immaturity in our Christian life that has its roots in our previous evil life. It is the vestiges of the unstable life of the wicked that maturity will drive out of our lives, including out of our prayers. I mean, think, think about, I mean, in terms of maturity and why this makes absolutely no sense to doubt. Think about, think about what doubt is, what we're moving from and toward. God is faithful, right? Well, but then you question that. So one day he's faithful. When you talk to people, he's so faithful. But then when you go to ask this faithful God to do something, then all of a sudden when the rubber meets the road and you're talking to this God, you're going, I'm not sure he's really that faithful. You never say that out loud, right? You'd never talk to someone else and say, well, I mean, I know he's kind of faithful. But when you pray, if you have doubt, if you're not praying in faith, but instead doubting that God even cares, what are you thinking about God's faithfulness? The wind of your doubt has driven you to a point that you are doubting the faithfulness of God. God is powerful, right? Oh, he's so powerful. He's sovereignly powerful over everything. But then you wonder, but can he really fix this in my life? Oh, he's so majestic, but is he, he's got so much strength, but you're praying for someone you love and you're not sure that God can do it. You're praying, you're praying for your relationship with your wife, but you're, you're so not sure that God can fix it. Oh, he's so powerful until you pray. And then you're not sure. Because how do you know you're not sure? Because there is doubt when you pray. You are being driven back and forth like a wave. That's the deceptive danger of doubt. So if you're, if you're praying and you're struggling in your prayers, you, you have doubt, a good healthy inspection of yourself is to ask, what am I doubting about God? What is it? Why am I not, why am I not confidently asking this and going, I believe that I will receive it even before I have received it because I know that I can trust God. What are you doubting? Just give yourself an analysis. Just, just when you pray and you feel that tinge of doubt, that you're not confidently just like, I'm going to God. Where is the doubt coming from? Because if, if, if we can get to the root of why we're being tossed around, then we can figure out where we lost anchor, right? Where did we, where did we lose anchor in this? What doubt is, is it that you are doubting the character of God? Are you doubting him? Are you doubting that he... That he cares about you. Is that, is that the root of it? Because you've got to know the root if you're going to get rid of the doubt. Is it that you're doubt, doubting his, his care for his children in general? Now, are you doubting if you can even ask these things? You know, what is it? So when you, when you go to pray and you are not praying in faith and you know there's some doubt mingled in your prayer, ask yourself, what am I doubting about God and why? Because that's going to help you kill the root, but it's also going to show you the foolishness of the doubt. Because we're almost going to be afraid to say what it is that we're doubting. And the reason we're going to be afraid to say it is because we know in the end it's foolish to doubt. And we're going to know that God has has done more than enough to make this doubting make no sense. 
And so we've got it. We've got to get to the root. We've got to get to the root, not just if we want this prayer answered. James tells us we've got to get to the root if we want any prayer answered. Right? That's it. Look at verse 7. For that person being tossed around, that person with doubt, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If we are doubters, not only will we not receive wisdom from the Lord, the Bible says we will not receive anything. This is why doubt, doubt is self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy because when you pray and you doubt, guess what you don't receive? The thing you prayed about. So it's like, I don't think God's going to do this. And God says, well, because of your doubt, guess what? You are not going to get it. And then you're like, look, I was right. No, you were never right. You were wrong the whole time. You're thinking, are you thinking you didn't get it because God doesn't care? You're wrong. You didn't get it because you were asking in doubt rather than in faith. So again, this is why it's essential to get to why am I doubting this? Because if you and I continue to allow room for doubt, we're going to keep wondering why God's not answering our prayers and we're going to get to the wrong answer to that question. We're going to continue to blame him when the real problem is us. Listen, if you struggle with doubt and you're praying and you're praying and you're wondering, why isn't God answering? Because you've skipped the first step, which is ask in faith with no doubt. And then if you ask it, you will receive it. So drive the doubt out of your heart or you're going to keep seeding doubt because doubt is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Why will they not receive anything? Look at verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we see here that doubt divides us. Doubt divides us, but it divides us self against self. He says a person who doubts is like a person with two minds. This is really an interesting word. It seems like this is a word that James made up. You don't really see it anywhere else, uh, which for someone who likes to make up their own words himself, I think that's kind of neat. Actually, the word word isn't so much double-minded. It's it's two-souled, double-souled. He's like a man who has two souls. One soul, a soul of faith in God. Another, a soul that doubts God. Now, James is clear that a two-souled man, right? And that's what's important. That's why we want to understand. The reason I point out it's two-souled rather than two-minded is I think we give, us, we give ourselves some slack when it's a minded thing. We're like, well, I'm just thinking about it. But when, as James says, no, this is a soul level issue, right? This is, this is a matter of your heart. And that's what James is going to point out in James chapter four, verse eight, that a double souled man is a sinful man. If you're someone who has this, who has doubt and you're double minded like this, a soul that trusts in God and yet a soul that doubts God, that's a sin, So James chapter four, verse eight says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-souled, you double-minded. And the double-minded, double-souledness is a a heart issue because it's not about God. It's not. When we doubt, it is about our hearts. 
There is something impure in our heart that is causing us to doubt the God who has done so much for us and has given us no reason to ever doubt him. In other words, if you you struggle with doubt in your prayers, the problem isn't God, it's you. And the double-mindedness is not about you just not believing God, but as as he says at the beginning of verse 8, it's about you really pulling away from God. So that's why doubt isn't just an inactive thing that has happened to you. Doubt is what you are choosing to do. And the problem with doubt is that doubt doesn't end with prayer. Doubt is insatiable in your life. Doubt wants to consume everything. Doubt will not just be happy with you being a doubting prayer. Doubt wants to consume you. It wants to consume every aspect of your faith, not just when you bow your head and close your eyes. So he says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in what? All his ways. Doubt makes us unstable in all of our ways. The the word there for unstable is a word that means not settled, not fixed, not firm. A doubting life is an unsettled life. It's a furtive life. It's a life that looks like a sea. And if your prayers are full of doubt, your whole life will eventually be full of doubt. And probably already is. And Christian, that is a very foolish way to live. So when we pray, we must not doubt. We must not doubt the character of God. We must not say, does he care for me? Does he really care? Don't doubt that he cares for you. We must not doubt the promises of God. Like Abraham said, is God really going to answer this? If he's promised these things, then have faith that he will do them. Don't doubt his promises. We must not doubt the power of God like the disciples were, were doing. Can God really do this? He can do this. He can do gr- this prayer that you're praying for. He can and will do greater things than that in your life and already has. Those sorts of thoughts will kill you. They will seep through your entire life. Until not just your prayer, but everything in your life is unstable. Think about it. Doubting prayer will make for unstable marriages. Because when your marriage is struggling, as it will do when two sinners decide to live together till they die. If you're not sure in your prayers, then you're going to look at that other person and you're going to ask, is God ever really going to fix this? Is he? Can he? Will he? Can he fix her? Can he fix him? Can he fix me? If you're doubting, then when you look at that other person and you're not sure God's going to fix this, that is gonna t- that's going to give you a marriage of doubt. Not just a doubt in that one prayer. Your whole marriage is going to be unstable. Because it's not going to have the foundation of God who is graciously growing two people in holiness out of their imperfections, helping one another toward those things. How do I know he's going to make a good husband someday? Because of God. How do I know that our marriage is going to not just be a marriage that will make it, 
but a marriage that's going to glorify God because of him and what he promises to do in our marriage and in us. But if you doubt that, if you're doubting that when you pray about your marriage, then you're going to be filled with doubt when you even look at your marriage. I mean, think of it, it, doubting prayer makes for unstable homes. And so you look at your children and you're wanting to pray for them, but you're going, well, does God really care about my children? Does it even matter if I pray for them? It makes for unstable churches. Is he here? Will he grow us into the holy temple that he promised? It makes for unstable work. It it makes for everything unstable in your life. If you allow doubt in, it will ruin everything. It will steal from faith in every area of your life because doubt is insatiable. So if you see doubt in your prayers, no Christian that those roots will not stay there. And like the wicked man, your life will know no peace if doubt is seated in your very soul, which is what it is. He says, if he can say that the doubting man is someone who is double-souled, doubt is already taking roots in your very soul and your whole life will be unstable. which actually lets us work backwards from this. Let's work backwards from this promise. If you are someone whose life is unstable, if you're someone who emotionally or spiritually is wildly swinging from from one way to another and you want to know why am I so unstable, the root, and you're trying to figure out what's the root issue. Why am I not firm? Why is my Christian life like up and then down and then up and then down? And my view of my husband is, it's so great to have a godly man. And then it's like, Chris, can I get rid of him and God still be cool with me? Uh, like, like that, if that's what's going on in your life and you're going, what is this? Where does this come from? The root might be doubt. It might be that doubt has crept into your life and has made you double-souled, believing in God, and yet at the same time managing to doubt Him. So if you are someone who is just a furtive-souled individual, if you're someone whose emotions do look like just waves tossed back and forth, then get to the root and you might find that the root issue is that you doubted God. And because of that, everything was thrown off. So what do you do? What do you do if you struggle with doubt? What do you do if you struggle? If you look at this, I am unstable. And it is because of doubt. It is because I I think I'm saying God can fix this. And in my head, I'm going, he's not going to. Maybe it is. You see, it is doubt. So what do you do? What do we do if we do want these good things? If we want to believe, if we want stability, if we want stability in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, in our work, in our lives, in our very souls, what do we do? If, we, if we're double-souled and we want to be single-souled, single-minded, what's the answer? The answer is, as always, look to Christ. Christ is the death of doubt. Because look at, what it, look at what Christ shows us. You're not sure that God cares for you? You're not sure that he cares about this situation in your life? He sent his son 
to die for you when you were still an enemy of his. And yet you're looking and wondering if as his child, now he doesn't care for you. Now he doesn't care about your marriage. Now he doesn't care about your work. Now he doesn't care about your finances. Now he doesn't care about your home. Look to Christ and see the majesty of the care of God for you. And there will be no room to doubt that he cares about this situation in your life when he has already taken care of a situation far grander and that you were far less deserving of him to care for you about. You're not sure that God can keep his promises? All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus, which is why we can utter our amen to God for his glory. Those are the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. Those are the words of God to us about his promises. So if you're looking at the promises of God and you know what you should pray for, you know what you should ask for, you know what you want to be in your marriage, you know what you want to be as a person and you're going, God, you say you're going to make me this. You say you're going to make her this or him this or my children. You're going to grow them into arrows that I will shoot into the heart of this dark world and the gates of hell will not be able to stop them. They will destroy arguments as they pierce through the heart of darkness. If, if you doubt that, if you doubt those things, how can we doubt them if all of the promises of God we have already see, received a yes in so that when we pray them, we pray amen before we even get them? We believe, why? Why can you believe and know that you will receive? Because God has promised. God who never lies and who can and will always keep his word. You're not sure if God has the power to do what you're asking like the disciples. You're looking at your life and your marriage looks a lot like a rotten fig tree. Or your home. Your home looks like a mountain that there's no way even God can move that. Or you're looking at your own struggles. You're looking at what you want to be and you're praying and you're praying for God to make you better. You're praying for him to strengthen you. You're praying even now for God to take away the doubt. And even as you're praying about God to take away the doubt, you're doubting that he can do it. Because maybe God doesn't know. Maybe when he's talking about mountains and fig trees, he didn't know the grand mountain that your doubt would be. He didn't know the level of anxiety he was dealing with. Jesus hadn't seen me yet. He didn't know I was coming in 2,000 years. I mean, maybe they can move Mount Jerusalem, but I'm like the Himalaya of doubt. If you're not sure God has the power to answer your prayers, he, he looked to Christ. In Christ, he had the power to conquer sin and death. Not your sin, sin. Not even your death, death. And he has proven that by raising his son from the dead and your heart with him. If you're doubting, Christian, it's an easy trek back. If you're doubting, it just means that you've lost your focus on Christ. Because a Christ-focused soul is a single-minded soul. 
It is a soul filled with faith because Christ kills doubt. Let's pray. Just take a moment right now, all of us, I think it would be foolish for us not to do this and just ask God to purge any doubt from our hearts. And even as you're praying about him purging doubt, make sure that you're praying it in faith, absolute faith. And if you can't or it's still a battle, look to why. What are you doubting about God? What are you doubting about? Where's the root of that? And let Christ kill that root. Because all of our roots are full. Look back at what he said. He gives generously to all. You're a part of all. And he's going to do it without reproach. God, lo- God wants to answer our prayers, even our prayers to remove doubt. God wants and will answer them. So ask in faith with no doubting. Because God has proven himself to you. Look to Christ and see all the proof you need that God will answer. So you can believe before you even receive. Father, We come to you today, God, and I pray that we are all as a body coming in faith. God, I am confident today. I ask you, Father, to make us wise, to give us wisdom as a body, knowing that you've promised that you will, that you will grow us into a holy temple for your glory, the great name of Christ, and for our good. And so, Father, I am anxiously and expecting to see you do these marvelous things. And I pray if there's any doubt there that, Father, my eyes would be fixed to Christ and that Christ would kill any doubt in those prayers, any doubt in my concerns for the, for the people here, for myself, for our homes, for our lives, that, Father, there'd be great confidence because we're praying to a great God who loves us and gives generously to his children. So, Father, kill our doubt lest its roots spread throughout our entire lives and we become people unstable, not just in prayer, but unstable in all our ways. If that's the case, our homes will be unstable, our marriages will be unstable, our church will be unstable, your name will be unstable even as we sing it, Father, because our souls will be split in half. Make a single-minded, Father. Fix our eyes on Christ and drive the dark of doubt away. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.